0: Hi, this is Jeff Kober, and we welcome you to this Disney Insights podcast. Everyone loves to play Armchair Imagineer, so when new attractions or the details around those attractions are announced, we, we immediately question, well, what's going on or why are they doing that? But on our to do list of first world problems, we can sometimes be too quick to not just speculate but downright criticize something long before it opens to the public. Turning to the Disney parks, we look at examples of that, but moreover, look at how we do it in our own Imagineered lives. With new attractions and offerings such as Tiana's Bayou Adventure, Moana's Journey of Water, and the Out of Left Field Smell on Parade announcement, we can see how this plays out. But nowhere has it emerged more than the long ago announced, but finally showing up at a haunted mansion near you, Hatbox Ghost, where some question not only where it should go, but why it should be there even in the first place. I'll share some personal insights and lessons learned since I can be guilty as any of not assuming positive intent. Together, perhaps, we could consider the power of doing just that, assuming positive intent, not just for upcoming attractions at Disney, but most importantly, in the day-to-day of our lives. Make sure you check out DisneyInsights.com as we're going to have um, some keynotes from this, as well as images and videos Uh, that support the things we're going to be talking about. By the way, also make sure that you take the time, if you would please, to rate, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. We also invite you to head over to our YouTube channel, Disney Insights, where you're going to find a lot of videos of topics that we're covering here today. Now, before I get into all of this Hatbox Ghost and Tiana's Bayou and all that I want to stop and take a detour and go on It's a Small World. This is a classic example of how so many people assumed anything but positive intent when Disneyland sought to add characters to the attraction. In truth, change has always taken place in this attraction, but word of this created not only anger, but threats toward the individual Imagineer who headed it all up. I want to kind of take you back in time. I think many of you may know that It's a Small World premiered at the 1964-65 New York World's Fair. But when it was brought to Disneyland the attraction not only was given a whole new entry but it was plussed up and made even bigger than it was in New York. For instance, the Oceania Oceania section was added to that um, that version. When the Magic Kingdom opened up they took a whole different approach to the queue by putting it indoors and then they utilized a flooded plain rather than a canal um, as part of the attraction. Tokyo when it opened up utilized that indoor loading area but then they kind of started expanding on the Asian section. Disneyland Paris well they actually took a slightly different designed um, aesthetic, a little different from Mary Blair's, very colorful, very, um, um, very larger than life, um, but different than Mary Blair's approach. And then they added an entire section to the United States. When Hong Kong Disneyland uh, opened, they refined um, the Asian section when the, when the attraction opened. And then they did something unique. They added about 32 Disney characters to individual scenes, um, such as uh, Mulan in China or Aladdin and Jasmine on a flying carpet. Uh, Then, uh, not long after that, they chose to make some changes, uh, particularly to some problems they were having with the canal boats at It's a Small World in Disneyland. And so they were going to take a fairly lengthy process. Now, mind you, they had already done a really good job with um, adding Small World Holiday a number of years prior to this, but they needed to do a closure on some on some technical issues with the running of the attraction. And so they determined that reading from Imaginary Story, and you may have seen a little blip of this in the actual video if you've watched on Disney Plus, But let me read what it says here. The closure would allow other upgrades as well. Permanent fixtures would be added to make the addition of the holiday overlay simpler, for example, and any figures or costumes that were reaching the end of their lifespan could be refurbished. But then news leaked of changes that went beyond maintenance. Doll-like figures representing Disney animation characters would also be added to the show, along with a small section that would be a direct tribute to the United States. The idea, said Imagineer Kim Irvine, chief designer on the project, had come from Hong Kong Disneyland, where Imagineers had just finished their It's a Small World, and they had incorporated a little Disney doll in each scene of their attraction. So Marty Sklar called me and said, quote, I think it would be fine if we did this in Disneyland. They're really cute. It would make a fine addition. I We haven't done anything new in It's a Small World in quite a while. Irvine, who had wa- worked with Mary Blair and knew her style, and by the way, if you don't know Kim Irvine, she is the daughter of Dick Irvine, one of the the original Imagineers, way back at the founding of Disneyland, and then Leota Tombs, who appears as the, uh, well, was uh, responsible for a lot of artistic work and so forth uh, in projects like It's a Small World, but, uh, but also appears as the headless uh, Madame Leota in The Haunted Mansion. So at any rate, it goes on to say, Irvine, who had worked with Mary Blair and knew her style, designed the figures for Disneyland. So we took uh, each one, Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland and such, and turned them into something that looked more like toys in the attraction. So instead of Cinderella being in her ball gown, she's in a little scullery maid outfit, with toy-sized mice representing the film's Jock and Gus alongside her. Alice was in her pinafore with a toy white rabbit. Each character was then strategically placed in the national area that corresponded to the origin story: Cinderella and friends, Alice and Peter Pan, with the British dolls, Pinocchio in Germany, Aladdin in Arabia, and so forth. Once we started working on them and I could see them transforming into something that fits seamlessly into it, I felt more comfortable with it. The details were not originally shared with the public and the pushback on that informa- on what information was available was immediate and alarmist. By the way, this was much earlier in the social media realm of it. So so it was very sketchy at that time. And, and what came out was, yeah, um, it was just that. It was alarmist. Despite everyone's apparent acceptance of the holiday overlay, which was much more intrusive than the character introductions would be, certain fans and former Imagineers took to the media to condemn the plan. I think when people first started hearing that we were doing this, it was difficult for them to imagine because they thought it was going to be Donald in a hula skirt and Goofy and a sombrero. Irvine said, "I totally understand why they didn't like the idea because that would sound bad to me as well. By the way, I think this is one of the issues with assuming positive intent. Until you can see the vision and how it's going to be be created out, you may shortchange what is being communicated to you, and you may not see the full picture." She goes on to, they go on to say, "Mary Blair had died 30 years earlier." But her son, Kevin, penned a letter to Disney that he said represented the entire Blair family and the wishes of their lost matriarch. The Disney characters in and of themselves are positive icons, he says, but they do not fit in with the original theme of the ride, he wrote. They will do nothing except to marginalize the rightful stars of the ride, the children of the world. This marginalization will do nothing but infuriate the ride's international guests and devoted Disney fans, end of quote. The family also opposed the tribute to America, he continued, citing the same marginalization's argument. Furthermore, Kevin Blair wrote, ripping out a rainforest, imaginary or otherwise, and replacing it with a misplaced patriotism is a public relations blunder, so big you could run a monorail through it. End of quote. As a former mentioner himself, he added, quote, I cannot believe someone from a mentioning was paid to come up with such an idiotic plan as this. End of quote. He concluded the desecration of Mary's art is an insult to Mary Blair, her art and her memory and the entire Blair family itself. End of quote. I find his languaging to be especially going public not being very professional, when you call somebody's plan idiotic. It's one thing to articulate, hey, this is not going to look good um, to take out the rainforest and so forth. But to call something idiotic is pretty pretty malicious in my view. And I think this is one of the things is, is sometimes in assuming positive intent, or failing to assume positive intent, we could become pretty emotional and we can be pretty... Um, mean-spirited in our response to others. It goes on to say the unfiltered anger of opponents to the changes made it probably one of the worst controversies to engulf Imagineering in Irvine's view. Disney tried to calm concerns with two open letters in response to Kevin Blair's, one from Sklar and one from Disney's chief archivist, David Smith, both of whom had known and worked with Mary Blair. Smith reminded the complainers, quote, that Walt Disney never intended Disneyland to be static and that the Disney imaginaries have continued to follow his dream, frequently adding and changing things in the park to give today's guests the best possible experience. Sklar also cited Walt's intentions and sought to put Blair's contributions to It's a Small World in context. Quote, Mary Blair's illustrations were, of course, the spark, But this one was of those great Disney team efforts, and many legends joined her. Mark Davis, Blaine Gibson, Raleigh Crump, Harriet Burns, and numerous others, as well as songwriters, the Sherman Brothers, end of quote. Sklar wrote that reports of great changes were either exaggerated or untrue. Mickey Mouse would not be making an appearance, The rainforest scene would not be removed. It was being repositioned to make room for the USA dolls and the world's children would not be marginalized. Quote, we are not turning this classic attraction into a marketing pitch for Disneyland plush toys. Rumors to the contrary, end of quote, he wrote. And by the way, let me just say that again, when you think about assuming positive intent, you have to assume that they have the right vision that they're not going cheap and that they're not trying to um, sell out the organization or sell out Disney, which honestly, you're going, we're going to have to, we're going to have to see examples of this, especially when we see smell elephants on parade, we're going to have to wonder about this in a minute, but this is part of assuming or not assuming positive intent. Irvine was um, looking for an ally from wed days. Irvine invited Alice Davis, Mark Davis's widow and designer of the original costumes from It's a Small World to Lunch. Now, this is an individual who is as invested in It's a Small World as anyone ever was, and she's still around. Over their meal at a restaurant, I showed her all of the designs Irvine recalled. At first, she was like, I don't think we should be touching anything in that ride. But when she saw them, she went, these are really cute. I want to help you design these costumes. I like these." And she actually had a lot of input into the costumes. Irvine was convinced the modifications were in the spirit of the first Imagineers. Any changes that we make are always done within the original intent. And I mean that across the park. We love Disney just as much, if not more than the guests. I mean, we grew up here. So it means everything to me to make sure that the original stories remain as they were, laid out for us by the original Imagineers. Change was built into the DNA of Disney theme park, she added. But it needs to be as good, if not better, than what was there before. You can't take away. Still, the online vitriol had Irvine spooked. While this was happening, I was afraid to go out on the street at night, she recalled. It was really serious and people were very upset about it. Her trepidation continued on opening day in February 2009 when she stood outside the attraction watching guests go in the experience to experience the refurbishment for the first time. She was incognito and no name tag or other indication that she was a cast member. Her mind was soon eased. I'd hear people come out and go, that's cute. Yeah, I really like that. Hey, did you see Peter Pan flying above? You know, and they like it. I think this story really kind of suggests and and underscores the importance of assuming positive intent and, and the negativity that can come when we assume otherwise of what individuals or a team of individuals are doing. The small world example plays out especially as there had not really been much word of this coming in advance, but that was largely because people lacked the imagination to see how Imagineers were going to actually bring this change to life. And that's a little confusing to me because the. Hong Kong version had come out and I think they could have shown pictures and visuals of that. But again, this was a little earlier in the social media realm and I don't think that they really had that ability to to communicate succinctly and smoothly. Then again, I'm not sure in any social media age anybody could really communicate perfectly and succinctly. I want to just say that former Pepsi CEO Indra Nooyi is credited with popularizing the phrase, assume positive intent. She said at one point, whatever anybody says or does assume positive intent. You'll be amazed at how your whole approach to a person or problem becomes very different. When you assume negative intent, you're angry. If you take away that anger and assume positive intent, you'll be amazed you could say wait a minute let me really get behind what they're saying to t- understand whether they're reacting because they're hurt upset confused or they don't understand what is what is it i've asked them to do in um i want to just share with you an experience that i've had relative to Tiana's Bayou adventure which has kind of turned my um my feelings around about this attraction and what's happening uh, you know i would have i love splash mountain and i really it was one of the attractions i really anticipated i had seen uh models of it and i'd seen an announcement and i'd heard the tony blair story about how he came up with it on uh, in traffic on this on uh, i think i was i5 <clears throat> thinking about how they could create a flume attraction, and I just, I really gravitated toward it. I realized that it was a little problematic because Song of the South, as a film, which it is based on, is problematic. At the same time, I thought, well, they removed the live-action portions. It's really just about the characters, Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox, Br'er Bear, and I just, I thought they did a great job of handling that attraction. I didn't want to see that go, but I also noticed over time, that uh, they weren't giving it the TLC that it really needed, and that they were probably sensing that something else needed to go in there. When Tiana's Bayou Adventure was announced, if you'll recall, it was about the May timeframe, about two months after the Disney parks had closed. It was part of the conversations they were having about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's at the moment that they added inclusion to the four keys of safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency. All of this was going on, I didn't have a problem with inclusion being added. I needed to think about how it was different than courtesy, but I did see that there was a need and an opportunity there. What I didn't understand is why are we paying attention to this when the parks are completely shut down and you're talking about a new attraction and you can't even open up any of the parks worldwide the timing seemed just off to me moreover they had announced a bunch of things at d23 in uh 2018 i believe and and I really kind of felt like, okay, you still got a lot more to deliver on. You've now closed the parks. Maybe you're able to work on it or not. But it, all of that seemed very confusing to me. There were other issues that I had with it. And the two issues mainly were, okay, this takes place in the South, but in which works really well at Disneyland. Because you go into the French Quarter of New Orleans Square and you pass the haunted mansion, and then to have a splash mountain or a Tiana's Bay, I get that. That's just a total flow. In Magic Kingdom, it didn't make any sense because you're going through Frontierland, and you're at Wild, uh, Pecos Bill's restaurant, and then you're jumping, and then you're jumping to Splash Mountain, and then you're jumping to Big Thunder Mountain. Those things are out west. And any rate, I have to say. Relative to that issue, I had to let that go because in time I had let it go with Splash Mountain. I thought initially when it was built in Magic Kingdom, this seems out of place, but I have to say the Imagineers did a fair, fairly good job of taking the rock work and landscaping and kind of allowing it to weave into into Big Thunder. And frankly, you know, everybody just loves Splash Mountain, so it didn't seem like a big issue. In fact, I thought it was really funny because last week I was working on my new book that I announced in our previous podcast, and uh, I I wasn't really studying uh, Song of the South, but I came across something that made me aware that that film was not filmed in Georgia. It was actually filmed out in Arizona. I'm thinking because of the red dirt that it was probably filmed in the Sedona area and uh, and that they had created that whole plantation there so i really thought that was interesting because i could see how you know that could tie in anyway long story short i had to eventually let it go because honestly i had allowed splash mountain to be at home there so why can't i let that go so that left only one problem and the one problem i had was well this thing is just it's The Princess and the Frog is tied to like the 1920s, 1930s, somewhere in that time period, 1920s, I believe it is. And the Frontierland is around the 1800s. I really feel like as you go into the 1900s, then you emerge into Main Street USA and, and other time periods. So I'm really struggling with the idea that you got something in the 1920s stuck here in the middle of Frontierland. So I was thinking about all of these things and then I went to Disneyland a couple of weeks ago and there they had decided to take the French Quarter restaurant and turn it into Tiana's Palace. Now I had a real problem with that, um, partly because Tiana's Palace is really a big uh, formal restaurant experience and this is really not that. It really is more of a counter, well, it's a buffeteria, as you would put it, where you stand in line to get your goods and then you go out and sit in the patio area. So I I thought if you're going to do Tiana's Palace, you ought to use a bigger facility, which Disneyland doesn't have much space for. But the bigger problem I had was the fact that French Quarter is just fine as it is. It's beautiful. It's well done. People love it. I go there probably more than any other one restaurant. I seek that restaurant out more than any other. And so I really had a problem with Tiana's Palace also being put into French Quarter. When I got to Disneyland and I could see the construction on Tiana's Palace, they were just finishing putting in the smokestacks and really the upper tier portion of that restaurant which was being added to it and i have to tell you it looked really good maybe it was just that the restaurant needed a little tlc but now nah, i gotta tell you it really looked like it fit in and it really even stood out it was really quite quite lovely and i i I tell you, I stared at it for so long, I forgot to even take a picture of it at the time because I was looking at the color palette chosen. I looked; was looking at the scale. I was looking at the details of it. And I kind of thought, huh, maybe this is going to work better than I thought. So when I got back home to Walt Disney World and to the Magic Kingdom, I thought, well, you know what? I need to, I need to think about the placement of Tiana's Bayou Adventure here at Magic Kingdom in the middle of Frontierland. And I happened upon, there was a two minute wait for the Country Bear Jamboree. And so I decided, you know what? I need to get out of this heat. I went in and started to um, watch this show. And as they were getting ready to, the thing that I just love, I love the theater here. And I love the ornateness of the theater. And at the top is Ursus H. Bear who is the founder of um, of this attraction. And um, I was looking at all the gilded work on, the, on this proscenium and I was thinking, I wonder if there's something in this show that suggests a time period later than the 1800s. And so I started looking for details within the show as I went through the entire show, the backdrops um, um, for uh, Mama Don't, Whoop, little um, Buford, different kinds of things. I was looking for different details, and then my attention came back up to Ursus H Bear, and sure enough, I'd forgotten that they note his lifetime on both sides of him. And I have an image in the in, in Disney Insights. It says eighteen sixty eight to nineteen twenty eight. Nineteen twenty eight. I always thought was kind of cute because it's when Mickey Mouse came around. But then I thought, wait a minute. If they have put his lifespan up there on the image, that means this theater right now is older than 1928. And these bears performing are performing in a time period later than 1928 because they've already put the homage up there on the top. Now, mind you, This is the Country Bear Jamboree. This is the first before Big Thunder Mountain, before Splash Mountain, before anything. This attraction was in Frontierland. And yet it had a time period set to, of all things, 1928. And I thought, you know what? I need to just assume positive intent on Tiana's Bayou Adventure. I'm still concerned about how long it's taken to build the thing out I particularly, I get a little, I get a little, the original Imagineers didn't, unless they had gone on personal travels, they didn't have the benefit of spending weeks in New Orleans, studying the architecture. In fact, in the 1963 National Geographic, they show Walt with an entire library of National Geographics, and they they talk and they show, Uh, one of the Imagineers um, actually working on New Orleans using an image from the National Geographic and, and using books and magazines and so forth is really how they crafted something as beautiful as New Orleans Square. So I keep seeing these videos where they're going back and talking about the food in New Orleans. They're talking about Mardi Gras. In fact, I put one of these videos on and I started to watch it And I thought, why are they doing all these things? It seems like a lot of money spent on these projects. And then I thought to myself, you dummy. They're trying to, rather than just point blank, change it overnight, similar to the whole it's a small world thing. They're trying to prepare the hearts and minds of people to really embrace Tiana's Bayou Adventure. And to see that there is merit in this change and that there is purpose and that there is authenticity. And that there is thoughtfulness in this attraction. And I have to say, you can't you can't blame them for that. They really do need to get everybody to buy in to Tiana's Bayou Adventure. And honestly, I think in the end, it's going to happen. I think by and large, people are going to embrace Tiana's Bayou Adventure. They didn't, by the way, embrace Haunted Mansion on day one. I remember the first summer, my brothers who stood in line for three hours to get on that attraction, they, uh, well, they walked out of it and they said, well, that was, uh, there, uh, it was kind of cool how they did all the ghosts and everything. He said, but then their comment was, but it wasn't very scary. You see, what audiences waiting for the Haunted Mansion with the sign in the front saying we're, you know, gathering up ghosts for this Haunted Mansion. They had waited all these years expecting something really, really, really scary. And while there are moments of spook, this is not an attraction about scariness. I'll save that for another podcast. But this is, this brings us now to the Hatbox Ghost. The Hatbox Ghost has a whole history behind it. And it's a history that's being played out right now with the new film, The Haunted Mansion, which has just come out in theaters. In the Hatbox Ghost, well, if you go back in time, Exitensio and other Imagineers had designed this idea of a Hatbox Ghost. And in fact, if you see the original, and I have an image on Disney Insights that shows you what this looks like, but they show you playing around with this, this idea and trying to make the image the character work um, as the hat box goes. He's a pretty scary looking guy. In the video that was done of the Osmonds going and visiting the Haunted Mansion, it was on the wonderful world of Disney. Very, very huge. If you've not seen that, that's like one of the great early on Disney. This is what got people excited about going to the Haunted Mansion, thinking it was gonna be really scary when it was just kind of playful. At any rate, they show an image of this. Now what you don't know and what I indeed believe is the case is the figure they are showing being worked on at that given moment was actually not a figure for Disneyland because that one had already been installed. This was the figure that they were making simultaneously for Walt Disney World to open two years later. Remember Haunted Mansion at Disneyland opened in 1969 Haunted Mansion at Walt Disney World would open in 1971. So they, for economy's sake, they built these figures in twos, in pairs, so that they would have that ready for the new. In fact, it was the first attraction that was completed at the Magic Kingdom. They just built out the show building. I don't even think the front facade of the building was completed. They just built out that show building and housed all the characters and had it all ready to go on opening day and then they worried for the next two years about all the other characters and there were a lot of animatronic characters that had to be built including the Country Bear Jamboree and others. So this hatbox ghost had been created not just for Disneyland but Walt Disney World and added to it it was a big part of the promotion of this attraction. For instance I bought the original record album and that uh, the 45 oh i also bought the 33 and a half and when you look at the front image of it you will see that um that there are ghosts in front of the haunted mansion at disneyland and which one is in the center right dead center sorry the uh, the term there dead center but anyway what is in the center of all this it is actually the hat box ghost The hatbox ghost was going to be a key figure in the attraction. By the way, he also shows up in the 33 half record album. There's images of him, dedicated images, and it also references and shows ghosts in the hallway. The text in the album says, I turned to run out of the attic, but another image blocked my way. He was a large cloaked figure whose head disappeared from his shoulders and appeared in a hat. Box He held in his hand. Now, that was the intent to put him at the end of the attic scene. But unfortunately, the thing didn't work. And after a number of weeks, Exitensio and others determined that the thing needed to be removed until it could be figured out. Now, mind you, this is 1969. They didn't have time to sit there and worry and figure it out because they had all of these other animatronic characters and Mickey Mouse review alone had dozens of characters that needed to be animated and so forth. And the Hall of Presidents and and on so forth. And so they had a lot of work to do and they didn't have the time to work on the Hatbox Ghost. And so it and they just simply removed out of the Haunted Mansion because they knew it wasn't working at Disneyland, so why haven't the Haunted Mansion? So when that attraction opened, there was no Hatbox Ghost there. And it just kind of went on. They went on to other projects, Epcot and so forth. And for decades, it was never it was never to be seen. So a couple of years ago, it was a very cool thing. The Disneyland went in and figured out the technology to make the Hatbox Ghost work. And they put it in. And it said it's beginning to materialize. Very well, that's problem is the narration. Um Says the ghost host says, as you go into the ballroom after having passed Leota, where she is summoning up the ghosts to materialize, the host, ghost host, recognizes this thing and says, They're beginning to materialize. I'll come back to you a little later. And you go and you see the entire scene played out in the ballroom of the haunted mansion. And so the idea was we're going to not portray these ghosts until we get to the ballroom scene. And I totally get that. And it makes sense when you see it at Disneyland. The only problem is is you get this whole setup with the bride and you see her with the axe. And then you turn and you see the groom or not the groom. It's not the groom, actually. It's the hatbox ghost. We are, not conf- we are not assuming that this is the groom. In fact, all her grooms have basically had their heads cut off. But then again, his head is cut off and being shown into a hatbox. So is he a groom or not? It's hard to determine at this. But what happens is you see him very quickly as you then turn and descend backwards into the graveyard. Um, now, People are very so when it comes time that we are finally after a year ago when it was announced at D23 that the Hatbox Ghost would be coming, here it's coming, it's coming kind of in around the same time as the movie's coming, although the movie ended up coming up a couple of weeks before it went into the Haunted Mansion. But it became apparent that this Hatbox Ghost was going into the scene where you see have the endless hallway, to the left of the endless hallway. And people are very upset about this. And people are not only asking, why is it going there when it shouldn't happen until after Madame Leota? Well, the truth of the matter is, is there is... There is flow to this and I think we have to assume positive intent as to why they're choosing to put it here. I also want to remind you that nobody's had a heart attack about this before. And I say this before because at Disneyland, several months out of the year, they do the nightmare before Christmas. When you look down the endless hallway during that scene, you actually see Zero the dog and he is in a ghostly form floating around in the endless hallway. He's been doing that as a ghost and even though the same kind of concept should happen with Leota that she summons up the spirits, nobody's complained about Zero the dog being down the hallway. Now we have a complaint around the hatbox ghost. The other thing I would say is when you go to Disneyland Paris, you will look down the endless hallway and you'll see The bride and groom, because the bride and groom is a much stronger storyline in Paris, you see the bride and groom come in and out of the endless hallway. And it's been there for a long, long time. Nobody's made a big to-do about that ghost or that spirit or that apparition showing up in the endless hallway. I think we need to lighten up a little and just, again, assume positive intent. I can see that one of the benefits of doing this is it's going to make the whole of the attraction much more dynamic and much more, um, kind of lengthen out the things that are very cool about the attraction throughout the attraction, rather than showing just your really, really cool ghosts toward the back half of the experience. That's my take on it and maybe why they're doing what they're doing. But again, Maybe we just need to assume positive intent. There are lots of attractions going on at Walt Disney World and Disneyland right now where we have to assume positive intent. One of them was the idea that a hotel tower or somewhat of a hotel tower, it's really kind of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, it's about 10 stories is being put in the Disney uh, Polynesian Village Resort Hotel. It's it's part of their new DVC wing. People forget that originally, well the Disney's Polynesian Village Resort goes back to the Disneyland Hotel. The Disneyland Hotel didn't have towers originally. It had garden-like wings where you had these little garden patios. When when and then later they built the towers which are at the Disneyland Hotel when they went to build the Polynesian Village Resort Hotel and the Contemporary Resort Hotel they chose to do model really what was at the Disneyland Hotel garden-like wings and towers and they had planned on a 13 story tower I don't think it was really 13 I think the bottom was going to be called the lobby and then the top would have been um, floor 12 but It was that high, higher than what's being built right now. That was planned on early on. It just didn't get built. Um, And so I think if we kind of stay open to it, it may look better. It may offer a more rounded experience. I'd like to think there might be some additional food or beverage or recreation, maybe an additional hotel that could be part of that. So I'd like to assume positive intent. Moana Way of Water, I think... That'll be really cute. I'm assuming positive intent with that. I'm just concerned that other people are assuming a big experience and it's not a neat ticket attraction. And that's not a bad thing, but it's not a big thing. It's going to take a few minutes to go through and you're going to be kind of done. There'll be little details here and there to kind of catch the next time you walk through it, but it's not going to be overwhelming. Uh, So I think that's a concern. Um, San Francisco. I actually like that idea initially. I think if you assume, and I don't think people really, um, I don't think people had too much invested heart-wise into what was Pacific Wharf before it. So I think people have an easier time of assuming positive intent on this. Now, where it becomes really crazy is where you get to this thing called Smell on parade. This is a family friendly search and sniff adventure being sponsored by Scentsy, the official home fragrance for Walt Disney World. The experience takes inspiration from pink elephants on parade sequence from Dumbo and concept art includes a popcorn themed elephant statue, meaning one of the smells you're going to get, is a popcorn theme, which is not surprising because where it's standing, there are already food um, food trains there, or food trucks, or carts, kiosks there, that are selling popcorn and already smells like popcorn. So I'm not sure where we're going with this. I don't know if you remember Food Rocks where you lifted up a box and it would produce an, an aroma or scent I'm thinking maybe some of that is appearing, happening there. They're saying cast members will provide guests with smellifants on parade maps and sticker sheets at the ticket booth in front of top big top souvenirs. With with assistance in training, can then explore storybook circus to find smellifant statues and record their unique scents. Um, and he will also become the sponsor of Dumbo's flying elephants. I gotta tell you. It's easy to condemn this one. This sounds silly and stupid. On the other hand, there could be something more to that area than what there is. I'd rather see maybe a D ticket attraction being put in, but there's not a lot of space back there. And I think this is again a place to assume positive intent. And I think that's the message in all of this. Let's assume positive intent. Wait till we see it. If we don't like it, then we say, you know, this is not working for me for these reasons, but maybe we should assume positive intent. Now, mind you, why am I saying all this today? I'm saying all this because not so much because of imaginary, but because we do this in life. This is what it looks like. I work with a lot of organizations. I see this play out in many ways. As I mentioned before, this podcast is sponsored by Performance Journeys and in my role as consultant I see because there aren't solid relationships of trust built between people or teams or organizational levels there are often problems where there is a lack of positive assuming positive intent lack of communication from the top can breed speculation for instance is it that they don't want their people in the trench to know what's going on or they don't trust them with the information they need? This is the thing that plays out. I'll show you, I'll tell you right now. The whole thing with where is ABC and the and the traditional networks going in Disney, this is something where it's hard to play it out among all your employees because they're going to be fearful and they run away and now you have a lesser network. It creates problems. So to make announcements as casually as Bob Iger did in that interview, creates problems. But can you assume that Bob Iger, who people loved when he came back to replace Chapek, can you assume that he has positive intent in trying to write this ship called Disney? Again, this is not about Disney. It's about our own lives. Looking at organizations, I, that's what I do, is I really help organizations look at their relationships of trust and why they are not assuming positive intent, I could tell you a few days ago, I was in a meeting where an individual shared with me some event that the individual had experienced. And I gotta tell you, it really made me upset and frustrated at that individual. And then I took the time to think, oh, wait a minute. Can I assume that this individual had positive intent in what they were doing? if I can assume that, maybe I can start to think differently about how we can approach this problem and resolve the issue. That took a few days because honestly, my heart was kind of really ticked and frustrated, but I had the chance to think about it and to mill it over. And finally, an idea came to me that thought, oh, we need to do that. That's what's going to help address this issue and make make it work for other people who are probably were probably challenged with assuming positive intent of even myself. So take the time, as we do so often in this podcast, we offer souvenirs for you and your own organization. Consider how the following can help you address how we, well, frankly, judge others. Ask yourself, what are instances where you are needing to assume more positive intent of others? What are instances when we need others to assume positively of what we're trying to do? How can we build better relationships up front so people can more easily assume positive intent of our efforts? How can we be more patient waiting on others when we don't have all the puzzle pieces ourselves? Where does communication play a role in this? Where does social media help or hinder. These are kinds of questions that um, that I ask of organizations. These questions and more, and it helps them to, well, helps them to better their organization. And maybe these same questions can help you as well. If you need more support in helping your organization, just reach out to me. From keynotes to full-blown consulting um, interventions that we work with organizations over a span of years to help them truly grow and develop their leadership potential their employee engagement their customer experience These are the things we actually get in the trench and help people do. So when you ask me for a keynote, just know you're not just talking to, you're just not having somebody stand up and share some really fun stories. You're asking somebody who really knows how these things happen and how to make them work in an organization. So reach out to me if you need help from Performance Journeys. We are here to support you in your organization and the things that you do. Again, Thank you for joining us for this Disney Insights podcast. We have so much more to cover. So much more I should also mention working uh, in tandem with uh, my fantastic editor, Terry this week. We kind of went back and forth. We have determined that this new book coming out is actually got has so much to it. That we have decided that we are going to divide it into two volumes. The first being 1923 to 1973, which is really essentially the Walt and Roy years, and then 1973 to the present, which takes on the Eisner and Iger and other um, leadership, uh, Card Walker, and, and so forth. So. Anyway, we're excited about this book and hope that um, it sends, yeah, provides you these kinds of messages to help you and your organization grow to the next level. Again, thanks. In the words of Sinbad, Storybook Voyage, always follow the compass of your heart because there are so many possibilities ahead of you. Have a great day. We'll see you real soon.